Hello and welcome. This is the Main Question Podcast from the University of Maine. Well, we've reached the end of Season 7. Hard to believe that much time has passed. I'm Ron Lisnett, and I've been thrilled to be the host of this series. This is episode number 80 overall, which also doesn't seem possible, but here we are. As we wrap up Season 7, we thought it might be interesting and fun to take a look back at this season and the nine very different stories we've told in the fall of 2022. We've covered a lot of ground for sure. The challenges teachers face in the classroom. What's it like to go on an archaeological dig? What is PFAS? What's a CubeSat? Just to name a few. Early in the fall, as schools were opening up, we sat down with folks from UMaine's College of Education and Human Development to talk about the challenges facing teachers and schools and how to rise to meet those challenges. We spoke with the Dean of the College, Penny Bishop, Jim Artisani, Associate Dean for Graduate Studies and Research, and Courtney Angelo-Santi, who talked about the excitement of that first day back at school. For me, school was never anxiety-producing. I come from a family of educators. I've always loved school, and I think for me, what I loved most about those first days back was the social pieces. It was seeing my friends after the summer, seeing who was going to be in my classes, opportunities to make new connections. Um, it was always an exciting time. What are some of the hot-button issues teachers are dealing with in the classroom and, and you in the college? You're, you're trying to get your arms around. Penny, let's maybe start with you. Sure. Well, I, I think one of the biggest things that people probably um, have noticed from any, any media source lately is this human capital shortage, if you will, that um, we are really working hard to increase and diversify the teacher workforce um, and the, the leader, educational leader workforce as well. So you'll note that um, you know, there are plenty of schools in Maine and beyond that are opening without full staffs this year. Um, so there's a real challenge in that regard. And then we're seeing increased political divisiveness. So certainly schools, school boards, teachers um, you know, are facing uh, greater challenges to um, curriculum, to policies, to practices. And that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. There are a lot of uh, people who are, are taking shots at education uh, and uh, it's, it's kind of easy to, uh, because we all went to school, it's easy for us to think that we know how schools operate even though we may have gone to school 40 or 50 years ago or even 10 years ago. Uh, schools have changed uh, so rapidly. Uh, what schools do now uh, with kids uh, is so far beyond uh, what it was like for certainly for myself. Schools do more for kids now than, than, they've, than they've ever done. There's a need for schools to do more, um, but we're also better equipped to do that. Uh, Earlier we talked about teachers leaving the profession and turn, high turnover rates and, and things like that. Um, one, of the, one of the areas that's often uh, pointed to why, why are teachers leaving the field and folks will say, well, kids are more challenging than they used to be. And, and that's a little bit hard to quantify, but. The fact is, uh, even for kids who um, do have significant needs in schools, we know more about how to help them and support them and teach them than we, than we ever have before. And so to me, that's really, really exciting. Well, if I had three apples, I would give you all apples right now. But thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks for thank the opportunity. For yes, thank you. For many years, UMaine's College of Engineering has been on a bit of an upswing, enrolling more students playing a bigger role in producing badly needed engineers, which help Maine's economy grow and progress. Dana Humphrey has been the architect of much of that progress. After 36 years at UMaine as a faculty member and then dean, he stepped down this fall. 
He leaves a lasting legacy in many ways, not the least of which is the new Furland Engineering Education and Design Center, a state-of-the-art building to house the college. At $78 million, it's the largest project of its kind in humane history. As he heads into retirement, he leaves with a great deal of satisfaction. As most retirees say, I don't know how I ever had time to work. Right, right. So 36 years at UMaine, that's a, that's a long time. Can you talk about what's going through your mind as you make this transition? I've left the University of Maine with, with a great sense of satisfaction for all the, the wonderful students that I've had the opportunity to have in class, for the great colleagues I've had at the University of Maine, uh, for the progress we've made uh, in the College of Engineering. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm leaving with a sense of satisfaction. And we'll get to the building here in, in a little bit that we're sitting in doing this recording right now, but um, that has been sort of your life's work for the last portion of your career is getting this new fantastic facility going, right? Yeah, so the, the Furland Engineering Education Design Center for me was about a 10-year effort uh, from the inception of the project to uh, cutting the ribbon. And as a civil engineer, it has been a blast to be part of a project like this. And to see it come to fruition. I mean, is it everything you thought it would be? It's more than I thought it would be. Uh, the creativity of the architects and engineers who worked on the project was just tremendous. Uh, they were great listeners, and we have ended up with an awesome building. So like we said, 36 years is, is a, a good chunk of time. Can you talk about the discipline of engineering. What was it like when you were becoming an engineer or studying to become an engineer? Um, what are the biggest changes and what has sort of stayed the same? When I became a, a working engineer, my first full-time job was in 1980. That was before there were personal computers. Uh, and so the biggest change in engineering is from calculators uh, and mainframe computers to having a computer on every engineer's desk. Uh, and what that has done is it's allowed us to take and have this great computational ability right at our fingertips. It's allowed us to have uh, computer-aided drafting as opposed to having drafters in the company I work for. I had a whole room full of drafters. Uh, and uh, that has just been transformational. Uh, it's made it so that engineers can work more efficiently, so they can do a better job refining their designs. But I'll say one thing that hasn't changed is that in, that initial creativity that comes from the engineer's mind in terms of how do you solve this particular problem, that hasn't changed at all. There is no computer that's going to take and replace that creativity that comes out of the engineer's mind. I've heard you speak quite often about the need for more engineers. Can you expand on that? Why are they good for society and for the economy? Yes, we, we desperately need more engineers. Uh, in Maine last year, there were six entry-level job postings for electrical engineers per graduate. There were four entry-level job postings for civil engineers per graduate. Uh, and we think about, well, that's fine. We can just do without the electrical engineers. We can do without the civil engineers. Well, one of the biggest transformations that's going to happen in the gen in, for the generation of students that's starting now is what are we going to use for our sources of energy? Uh, that's going to take a tremendous amount of work for electrical engineers. Uh, and we need more. 
we take a look at our infrastructure. A lot of the infrastructure that we use today, it was built by my father's generation. It's going to have to be rebuilt by the current generation of engineers. We just don't have enough. Uh, we're in a world that's increasingly technologically complex. So even though computers, which we talked about before, allow engineers in some cases to work more efficiently, we still need more because of the technologically advanced world that we live in. Uh, and there are so many solutions that need to be, uh, that need to be uh, created uh, that we, we just need more engineers. Among the many things keeping Dana busy in retirement, finishing his solo hike of the Appalachian Trail, more than 2,000 miles. He completed his last section of that this fall. For many, the image of what an archaeologist does and looks like was likely informed by movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark. For an actual archaeologist like anthropology professor Dan Sandweiss, that image is far from the truth, but no less exciting. He studies ancient prehistoric civilizations in Peru, among other places. The puzzle of piecing together how those people lived and overcame climate changes and other challenges has been his life's work. What led to your interest? What sparked your interest in anthropology? Were you one of those kids that uh, dug up things in the backyard? I actually did, although I didn't know I was interested in archaeology. When I was a kid, we did go to Pompeii, and I was fascinated by it. But I got into archaeology as a, as a field by taking a, a gen ed course to avoid taking natural science. I took an archaeology course, and it was pretty cool. So I took another one, and I was one of about five out of 60 kids who wasn't bored to tears. And I was on the edge of my seat, and I never looked back. What was it about it? Is it the digging? Is it the discovery? What, what is it? It's learning about things you can't re just go read about in the documented. Don't figure it out from what's left behind. So it's the discovery. It's the new knowledge. It's the ability to be creative about understanding the past. So you teach at all levels, uh, higher education, from the intro course to, to the PhD level. Talk about the, the intro to anthropology course. How do you get students excited about this subject, about which you care so much? I think what gets them excited when they do is that I'm clearly excited about it. I really think archaeology is cool. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy making discoveries. I try to show that in the class, and at least the students who like the class say that they, they pick that up. And I try to use a sense of humor. I make a lot of bad jokes. They, again, seem some of them seem to appreciate it, and the other ones, they don't say anything. I have over 500 students now in that class. And so some people are, are really, really into it. I've picked up majors from that class because they, they pick up the bug of being excited about understanding the past from what's left behind. You have to sort of think of, of what we can uh, learn from all of this. And I guess if you don't know your past, how are you going to know where you're headed? Is that something that uh, you ascribe to? Absolutely. And, and there are things, so we've talked about paleoclimate and how the archaeological record sometimes has clues to paleoclimate. So I said before, it's absolutely essential to understand well what happened in the past. It's the only way to see if the models that climate modelers make actually predict what really happens. Otherwise, we might make incorrect predictions about the future and act on those and then really got, get caught out flat. So all the different kinds of paleoclimatologists, many of them, most of them are geologists, and there are many different kinds of records from ice cores, from lake cores, from corals, and tons of others. But among those are archaeological sites. Where I work on the coast of Peru, 
most of the usual ways of getting paleoclimate information really aren't available. There are no corals. The ice cores are far away and partly record other climates rather than the area that we work in, which is core to the El Nino events. There are almost no lakes because it's a desert. So for the last 13,000 years, the archaeological sites are one of the best sources of information about what climate was like over that period. So there's a, there's a contribution we are making, and I think we can continue to make, that will have direct implications for the future and what we do about how the world's changing. Season 7 of our podcast series then shifted to a problem that is very much a present-day concern. The family of chemicals known as PFAS, also known as forever chemicals, is wreaking havoc in our drinking water and as a toxin that greatly affects human health. Honor Apool, an environmental engineer, researches ways to get that chemical out of our lives. He talked about what PFAS is, why we use it, and how he's attempting to mitigate its effects. PFAS stands for um, about 5,000, 6,000 different chemicals. It's an umbrella term, and anything that has a carbon fluoride bond in a chain-like structure uh, saturated with fluorine ion uh, elements is uh, PFAS. Now, you talked about Teflon pans, but this stuff is everywhere. I heard it's even in dental floss and certainly in drinking water. I mean, is, is it really pervasive in our world? It's everywhere. Um, 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS through drinking water. It's in floss. It's in nonstick pans. It's in food containers. It has in um, uh, nonstick fabric, nonstick carpets, firefighting foams. It has been used as a commercial product for a long time. It's been produced domestically even a few decades ago. So are you looking to neutralize it, eliminate it, uh, you know, sequester it away? How, how do you hope to uh, deal with it and get it out of our lives in this way? Removing it from water uh, uh, is not very difficult. It is just another chemical, and we know how to deal with removing chemicals. The problem becomes its circular motion. If you remove it, then what happens to the filter medium you used? What happens to the membrane, the activated carbons that you used? So I focus on um, destroying PFAS when it's adsorbed onto filter medium, particularly granular activated carbon. I'm trying to integrate PFAS destruction into the existing engineering systems. Study of the humanities has long played a central role in the education of students at UMaine, even for those who major in other disciplines. The McGillicuddy Humanities Center is the place where the research artistic endeavors, and similar activities gain the spotlight and garners support. The MHC director is Beth Weeman, a professor of music at UMaine, who talked about the center's origins and mission. Back 10 years ago, there was a strategic plan being put forward by the university called the Blue Sky Plan, and they were funding sort of pilot projects for various things. And the then dean of our college of liberal arts and sciences, Jeff Hecker, wanted to put together something that would essentially support the humanities research of the current faculty and students better than what we had been doing so far. Um, so he put together kind of, a, as I said, a pilot program with Scott C., who was a professor of history at the time, and he led what was called the Humanities Initiative and eventually became a center. And for the first five years, it sort of did a kind of steady growth. At that time, Jennifer Moxley, an English professor and poet, was the director, and she was talking to the McGillicuddy's, who had been a supporter, supporting, you know, couple for the, for the initial version of the center. And, 
she had an idea that they should have undergraduate fellows. And that became a much bigger deal for us, right? So she started off with having four undergraduate fellows being given funding for undergraduate research in the humanities and arts. So the McGillicuddy's wanted to fund the center more permanently. So they made it a name center for the Clement and Linda McGillicuddy Humanities Center. We thought that the humanities programs might interact more if they were actually sort of being funded by a unit that could promote connections between these different departments. The rite of passage that is attending college in this country is an interesting mix. Many time-honored traditions continue on. At the same time, the life of a college student is undergoing radical change. Some of that's due to the pandemic, of course, but there are other factors, social media, a focus on mental health, and others. At UMaine, the folks who work in student life are adapting to those changes and starting up programming or putting resources into the effort to help students find a community that just fits for them. Ben Evans, Assistant Director of Campus Activities, and Lori Sidelko, an Assistant Dean in Student Life, talked about how they go about helping students feel at home at UMaine. I think the big thing for us is making sure students can get connected to our campus and really feel like they have, can find their people while they're here. Um, the classroom is obviously why they're here. They're here to be students, but we are here to support them um, after hours and to support them um, from campus programming to finding organizations that they can be part of and just making sure that they find their place, find their people, and can really plug in. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with um, being a student, especially if you're a first-year student, especially if most of your high school career was during the pandemic, um, you haven't gotten to create yourself. And so we're really giving students that opportunity to invent who they are. Lori, there's more than 11,000 students here, and I'm sure all kinds of um, issues, challenges uh, come through your door. What, what has been top of mind for you as this uh, fall semester has gotten underway? I think just to tag on to what Ben said, I think students are just nervous. Uh, a lot of students have just been by themselves for the last few years. And so um, we're, we're finding new ways to help them engage. Um, they need some help with some of their social skills, finding friends, meeting new people. Um, so we're trying to teach them or help them to learn about how to be more social, how to engage with others. So where in the past we could have a student organization um, fair and people would just go to the meetings. Now it's more that we're trying to find some mentors for the students who they can meet with ahead of time. Not, it's not so scary to walk into a student organization meeting to join that group. So uh, we're trying to find some bridges so that the students don't feel so nervous about engaging. Farming in Maine is somewhat of a different animal, no pun intended. Our state bucks many trends with a growing number of younger farmers setting up shop. Smaller farms that produce specialty or niche products are more common here than in most places. But one thing about farming is universal. It's a challenge to make a good living and run a successful business. That is where the BARD Technical Assistance Program can help. BARD stands for Business, Agriculture, and Rural Development. The basic idea centers around helping farmers on the business side of the operation. Marketing, price setting, product development, consumer research. Aaron Carter, an assistant professor of marketing in the Maine Business School, helps run the program. We felt like there was a real gap between um, what we were seeing in a lot of publications coming directly from farmers and smaller scale agricultural producers in the state, um, talking about the kinds of resources that they need, that they feel like they lack, and 
kind of meeting those resources at the University of Maine. So specifically, again and again and again, we see farmers saying they need help with um, business operations, but more specifically, many, many um, independent research studies show that people are asking for support specifically with marketing. And, and so we started thinking about, okay, what are some things that we can do um, as people in a business school to begin to address those needs of, of smaller scale, uh, in particular agricultural producers? Maybe you can paint the, the big picture for us, the state of agriculture these days in Maine and beyond, and then maybe drill down to what is very prevalent in Maine is those smaller specialty product farms, more boutique kind of situations. Often when we hear facts and figures like Maine has more beginning farmers than anywhere else in the country, Maine has younger farmers than elsewhere in the country, um, Maine has more diversified farms than elsewhere in the country, those all conjure like really romantic thoughts about like young back to the land families like making a go of it and, and really doing it. And I am as much if not more uh, kind of infatuated with the romance of those ideas as, as anyone else. But the reality is that it is really hard to be a beginning farmer. I don't know any other industry where if you say, I'm creating a startup in XYZ, where people immediately assume that what you produce is exactly the same as what anyone else who produces a thing by that name is producing. A tomato is a tomato is a tomato. Corn is corn is corn. Wool is wool is wool. If you tell me that you're starting a startup in some other industry, um, I immediately start thinking about like, oh, okay, well, what makes you unique? And so the, the deck is kind of stacked against beginning farmers, I think, in a really unique way that makes it uh, challenging and, and therefore um, interesting and I think rewarding to try and research. 2022 marked the 50th anniversary of a signature research endeavor at UMaine. The Climate Change Institute celebrated its golden anniversary with a variety of events. We sat down with the Institute's director, Paul Majewski, to talk about what climate change research was like in 1972, what we know now, and how that work will evolve going forward. The field of climate science really didn't exist the way we think about it today. Uh, we were mostly under the impression that climate operated slowly, that the polar regions were fascinating places that literally were so far away that they had no impact on anybody. In the last 50 years, a lot has changed. We have, we've had Earth Day, of course, the discovery that there are toxic substances that we put into the atmosphere. The Institute has had an immense amount to do with that. Uh, we have also seen dramatic changes in the extent of glaciers all over the world. The Institute has had a major impact in those discoveries. We've learned that the climate can change as fast as a political cycle, uh, which is particularly important because if you assume that the climate operates slowly, which it was assumed, uh, prior to about early 1990s, that means that if you put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, they're not going to do anything. That's absolutely not the case. We know that today. Uh, the impacts of climate uh, change, not just greenhouse gases, no doubt one of the most important, but pollution in the atmosphere. Seven million people a year die prematurely as a consequence of poor air quality. So the major environmental events uh, for lack of a better term, that, that we see now, uh, wildfires, uh, floods, rising sea level, uh, droughts, 
those uh, are those worse than was thought back when the institute began and are they getting bigger sooner is that uh, one of the discoveries that unfortunately is being made right now absolutely the fact that we are now subject as a consequence of warming the planet to more extremes in the weather system and more extremes in climate, which of course is weather integrated over many, many months and, and some years. We need to align an understanding of climate impacts much more with our understanding of economic outcomes, of social outcomes. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more to do. And uh, while people might have thought 20 or 30 years ago that we knew everything we needed to know. Uh, and some people today even assume, well, it's going to get warmer by 2100. We just have to live with it. There's a lot more to learn about how we move along in that direction, what the impacts are. And there are a lot of great opportunities out there. There will, without a doubt, be a large portion of Earth's population that will be very badly hurt by continuing climate change. But there are many things uh, that can be done to either soften that, ranging from economic to major technological discoveries uh, that will actually make the way we live healthier, less dependent on uh, resources that the world has less and less of. So I have a very bright view of the future, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be uh, some very serious shocks that we experience in the process. One major focus of CCI's work is to document the human dimensions of climate change. What does it mean for people and communities here in Maine and beyond? Anthropology professor Cindy Eisenhower examines that issue through the lens of what we create, use, and throw away in today's modern world. In the literature, there are what are called push strategies and pull, you know, demand and, and uh, pull strategies. And I, I think we need both of them. Um, but what I'm ultimately... All of my work has been, you're right, largely focused on consumption, but consumption not separated from the extraction, production, distribution. It's the, it's the linear kind of chain of the entire like materials economy. And so, um, yeah, a lot of the strategies that I've studied, including reuse, has to do with like, how do you prevent that whole linear chain through keeping products in use longer, right? And, and then you can kind of displace all that, those emissions along that whole chain. So, um, but there, I think in terms of policy, mitigation policy, you, you can and we absolutely should be working on both push and pull strategies, demand side and supply side strategies. In our last new episode of season seven, we turned our attention to the sky, specifically the satellites that whiz around in our atmosphere. Some look deeper into space. Others measure things happening here on Earth or help us communicate. Working with NASA is on the uptick at UMaine. It's a sign of a burgeoning space economy in our state. One example of this type of work is the launching of a CubeSat. Think a small device, maybe the size of a toaster oven, that can circle the globe and gather all kinds of scientific data. Ali Abedi, a professor of computer and electrical engineering at UMaine, and his Ph.D. student Joe Patton are developing UMaine's satellite program called MeSat-1, which will work with school kids across Maine and launch a CubeSat early next year. Actually, one of the main thrusts of our mission is that middle schoolers and high schoolers across Maine actually designed the science mission. So our job here was just to do the engineering for them. But, you know, we sent out a call for proposals, and the winning proposal 
it was their idea. They wanted to look at harmful algal blooms. They wanted to look at urban heat islands. Uh, so we're just doing the engineering to get that data for them. And once we go into orbit, hopefully cross our fingers, everything works, then we'll be able to deliver that data to them and, you know, they can do whatever sort of science they want. And at what schools are involved? So we have Falmouth High School, uh, Saco Elementary School, school. Saco Middle School, and uh, Freiburg Academy. So there is a large number of very high quality aerospace and space manufacturing companies in Maine. Uh, that you can't count with your hands. Uh, and there are a couple of launch companies, uh, Blue Shift Aerospace and Vault Enterprise, that they are also into this market uh, with very unique and interesting technology. One is using organic rocket fuel. The other one does not carry oxygen on board and uses the oxygen in, in air. So we call them air-breezing ramjets. So those are very promising in terms of the infrastructure. And then there is a lot of R&D going on here, of course, at University of Maine and our partners in other campuses, uh, University of Southern Maine and others. And um, more recently, um, the Maine Space Grant Consortium led a group of us to kind of talk to each other. And then we went to the legislatures and we got the Maine Spaceport Corporation approved and signed by the governor. So now we can actually have access to economic development funding uh, and more uh, sort of federal and state funding to actually foster this collaboration. And why Maine is good, other than existence of all this infrastructure, is that we are the most northeast location in the country. And uh, in order to get to one of the best orbits around the Earth, which is polar orbit, we have the best capability to actually get to the polar orbit, um, which takes less energy from here compared to like equator that is good for the geosynchronous orbit. And, of course, we also have a lot of land here, which is unoccupied, like um, we can launch horizontal launch over the ocean and all that kind of stuff. So there are a lot of attractive sort of features for a spaceport to be here. Um, and I think that will change the man's economy. So. From the farm to the classroom to outer space, it's been an interesting ride exploring some fascinating stories about the research and creative work happening at UMaine, we've been honored and beyond excited to bring them to you. The main question will take a break over the holidays, but we'll be back with some more great stories early in 2023. So many great topics to dive into. If you want to learn more about any of the stories we've recapped here, you can check out all those episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. UMaine's Facebook and Twitter pages link to them, as well as UMaine's website, Amazon, and Audible. This is Ron Luznet. Enjoy the holidays, everyone, and we'll be back for Season 8.